Welcome to the Rebel at Large Adventure Podcast. I'm Drifter. And I'm Gypsy. Talking about ghost towns, graveyards, outlaws, heroes, and ladies of the night. Howdy folks. Thanks for joining us for yet another adventure. Today we are taking you with us along I-70 in Colorado. This is our favorite route from the Salt Lake area to Denver. However, we aren't going that far this time. This route begins at the end for Harvey Logan, better known as Kid Curry. Harvey Alexander Logan was born in 1867 to William Henry Neville and Eliza Jane Johnson Logan in Richland Township, Iowa. He had four brothers and one sister. The oldest brother, James William, was born in 1860. Denver Henry, also known as Hank, was born in 1862. Then came Harvey, better known as Kid Curry, in 1867, followed by his sister, Arda Elma, and she went by Allie, and she was born in 1868. John A. was born in 1870, and the last child was Lorenzo Dow, which went by, he went by Lonnie, and he was born in 1872. So after Lonnie was born, the family moved to a farm in Gentry County, Missouri. The records during this time are terrible, and historians could not account for the whereabouts of Harvey's father, so they assumed he was dead. But according to the Logan family, their father and the oldest son, James, would live for long periods at a time working various construction jobs. His parents were never divorced either. People said that they were divorced and then that his dad died, so neither of this is true. What we do know is that Harvey's mother passed away in 1876 during childbirth. With his father out working, the children were sent to live with their aunt, Elizabeth, and Uncle Hiram Lee in Dodson, Missouri. Elizabeth and Hiram had eight children of their own. The oldest, which was Mary, was already married and not living at home when the Logan kids arrived. Probably a good thing, one less mouth to feed, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, they were living in a two-story farmhouse located on Dodson Road, which is currently 86th Street and uh, Troost Avenue. Hank was about 14 years old at this time, so he would do what he could to help around the farm. As the rest of the Logan boys got older, they started working around the farm as well. Not a lot is factually known about the boys' time with their aunt and uncle, other than stories that have been passed down. One story tells about 12-year-old Harvey stealing a gun from the town drunk. (laughs) I love it. He and his brothers then went into the woods to practice shooting at small game. Another time, Harvey backed the town constable against a wall and threatened to kill him if he went to his aunt with another complaint about the boy's behavior. It's a little excessive. Yeah, which makes you think that he was probably a pretty bad kid if he had to threaten him not to tell his aunt again. Right. (laughs) He was into a lot of shenanigans. Yeah. Well, in late 1883 or early 84, Harvey was about 16 or 17 years old, and his older brother Hank, who would have been around 21 or 22, decided to leave the Lee's farmhouse and head out west. There are several speculations as to why the boys wanted to leave, one of them being the influence they received from reading the Pulp Western magazines and wanted to become cowboys in the Wild West. Didn't we all? Yeah, who wouldn't, right? No. The other speculation is that Hank wanted to leave his wife because she gave him a venereal disease. (laughs) Yep. By early fall of 1884, the brothers had arrived in north-central Montana territory. They were told they could find work at the settlement of Rock Point. When they arrived, they introduced themselves as Hank and Harvey Curry. 
Contrary to what has been written, the brothers did not get their last name Curry from flat-nosed George Curry. If the birthday of March 20th, 1871 is correct for George, that would have put him about the age of 13. And I highly doubt that Hank and Harvey looked up to a 13-year-old George that much. Mm. And also they spelt their last name C-U-R-R-Y and he spelt his last name C-U-R-R-I-E. So I have a new theory on the name then. Okay. So just like the kids now make up a new word for, well, just about everything. Like spilling the tea? Everything, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Perhaps they made up a slang word themselves. So a cur was a common term of the day, which referred basically to a mutt. Uh, It was used as well to refer to another man as being basically despicable. So just like the kids today, I could see them tell each other that you're just acting all curry. (laughs) So if this was a term they used to josh each other around, I could see it being adopted as a bit of a brotherly joke at the time. And it would be like, hey, we'll just be the Curry brothers because we're both calling each other Curry all the time. Yeah, I like it. Maybe. Maybe. It is what it is today now. That's the new theory. Yes. You Uh, you heard it here first. Right here and now. Right here and now. (laughs) Uh, Well, once they got there, they got a job working at the Circle Bar for the Fall Roundup. Because Harvey was so young, the men on the crew started calling him Kid, and thus Kid Curry was born. There you have it. In 1886, the Curry brothers partnered up with McNara and Marlowe and established their own ranch near the headwaters of Rock Creek, just south of the Little Rockies. The men would break horses on a shared basis. Yeah, so for those of you that do not know what it means to break a horse, they were actually taming wild horses. They weren't going around and like breaking the horse's bones. Uh, no. Well, while working the range, the boys met Jim Thornhill and he helped them complete their cabin, barn, and corrals on their homestead, creating the Curry Ranch. Jim then filed for five homesteads around the Curry Brothers' property. Kind of cool. So they all lived by each other at this point. Mm -hmm. By spring of 1888, their brother Johnny arrived and then the following year Lonnie arrived. The fall of 1893 brought tragedy to the boys when Hank was told he was suffering from tuberculosis. He was told to go to a drier climate to try and heal. That was a pretty common prescription back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did that in Doc too, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, so many. So Harvey loaded his brother into a wagon and headed towards Steamboat Springs, which is ski country, not a drier <laughs> climate. <laughs> so, well, Hank passed away while en route sometime in either late 1893 or early 1894, which is ski time in ski country. This is not going to a drier climate, but whatever. (laughs) That's what they did. Right. We're going to change gears just a bit here and tell you about someone that played a large role in Harvey's life named Pal Pike Lindusky. We aren't going to get into too many details about his life because he really could be his own episode. I don't know, maybe a Patreon episode. We'll just have to kind of see. But Pike came to the area the Curry's Ranch was at around 1884 in search of gold. In 1893, Landusky and a friend discovered a large vein of ore that yielded them $13,000. It's about uh, 350 grand today. Yeah, so a town quickly sprung up in the area after that, and it became known as Landusky. And I read something that the Curry brothers voted against naming the town Landusky. I'm sure. Yeah, so um, they had a post office, a stage station blacksmith, dance hall, and most importantly, saloons. Mm-hmm. Well, the Curry boys lived in peace with Landusky while Hank was alive. But once he passed away, things began to decline between them. 
What pushed the relationship they had together over the edge was when Lonnie started to date Landusky's youngest stepdaughter. Cinderella was her name, also known as Elfie. Yeah. Landusky hated this and told Harvey to tell Lonnie to stop seeing her. On or about October 3rd, 1894, Harvey, John, and Lee, who was Harvey and John's brother-in-law, beat up James Ross. On October 27th, Ross filed charges against the men claiming that Harvey held a shotgun to Ross while Lee and John beat him over the head and body with pistols. Sounds pretty painful. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Buckley came to Lindusky from Fort Benton to arrest the men. He deputized Pike Lindusky to help him and place the prisoners under his care. And I don't know if he knew the relationship that Pike had with the boys or not. Mm, not likely. But kind of a bad idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this actually gave Pike exactly what he wanted. Alone time with the Curry boys chained up. He threw back some shots of whiskey to get himself some liquid courage Then he walked into the milk barn where the men were tied up and began beating and kicking them. He then spit tobacco juice in their face, and if that wasn't enough, he urinated on them. Landusky then pulled out his knife and told the men he was going to cut their junk off, and Harvey told him to untie them and give him a chance at a fair fight. Mm -hmm. Eventually, Landusky just kind of wore himself out and figured he was kind of pushing things a little too far, Mm -hmm. and then just left leaving the men in the milk barn for them to come get him. So Nice. Well, the three men went to see the judge in Fort Benton, and a trial was held in December where they were fined 50 bucks each. The Currys felt that Landusky had set him up in an attempt to get possession of their ranch and to run the Currys out of town. When the men were not placed in jail and were allowed to return to the ranch, Landusky tried to change his attitude towards the brothers because he feared what they were going to do to him. Yeah. And he threatened to cut off their dicks and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And now they're neighbors again. Yeah. Hey, bro, what's up? We're cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, that Christmas, the town put together the largest Christmas party anyone had ever seen before. They even had canned oysters brought in. Mm. Ugh. That's so gross. Yeah. And you were talking earlier about they used to seal the cans with lead. Yeah. So that now they have lead oysters. Yeah. That's gross. Yeah. Well, this was Lindusky's last Christmas he would spend alive. I hope he ate extra oysters. <laughs> Enjoying it while he could. Mm-hmm. Um, on December 27th, 1894, Lindusky was standing at the bar enjoying a drink and a smoke with a friend when Lonnie Curry and Jim Thornhill walked in. They went to the back of the bar and Harvey came in after them. Harvey walked up to Landusky, grabbed him by the shoulder, spun him around, and started punching him in the face. Lonnie and Jim then yelled out to everyone in the bar. Fair fight. Fair play. Thanks, boys. The two men then fell to the floor with Curry on top of Landusky. And this was when Curry's gun actually fell out, out of his pocket onto the floor. Thornhill then picked it up, saying, No one shall interfere. See, gentlemen, I don't draw this pistol. I pick it up off the floor. At this point, Curry's actually sitting across Lindusky's chest with his knees on his arms, kind of just pinning him down. And he's just pounding the shit out of Lindusky's face. Thornhill eventually pulls Curry off of Lindusky and hands him back his gun. So Lindusky got off the floor pulled his gun from his holster and stuck the pistol into Curry's stomach. He held it there for a few seconds as he attempted to fire a shot, but his gun malfunctioned. Curry then grabbed his gun with the left hand to pull it away, all the while drawing his own pistol out with his right hand. He fired three shots at Landowski. The first two hit him, and the third one missed him because he had already fallen to the floor. 
It's pretty quick for him to pull his gun out in the same time of pulling Landusky's gun away mm-hmm. to be able to draw that fast yep. and then land your shot. Mm-hmm. Well, after that, the town went crazy trying to get the doctor to the bar and to try and save Landusky's life, but it was too late. By the time he got there, Landusky had already passed away. Meanwhile, the Currys and Thornhill were at the ranch trying to decide what to do next. Lonnie, John, and Thornhill felt it best to stay in town and take their chances with the law. But Kid Curry, on the other hand, he refused to turn himself in. He felt the justice system would be unfair to him and that he would be found guilty of murder. Kid and Thornhill hid out in an isolated cabin in the Missouri River breaks between Antelope and Bull Creek. In May 1895, Lonnie was served with a warrant. Thornhill was served with a warrant in July. And the two men went before the judge in Fort Benton, where on May 14th, the jury found Lonnie not guilty of the shooting and believed it to be self-defense. Then on August 27th, 1895, Thornhill received the same sentence of not guilty. So had Kid Curry stayed, he very well would have been found innocent, but instead he made the choice to live a life on the run. Yeah, he drew after he was drawn on, so it very much would have been a self-defense thing, I'm sure. Yeah, and it was funny because they they were saying that even Lindusky's friends weren't on Lindusky's side. Mm -hmm. Most people didn't really care for him. He was just kind of an asshole, and they didn't really care that he was dead. Kind of sad to say, but he definitely probably would have been found innocent. So. Well, Kid Curry eventually made his way to the hole in the wall, and this is when he meets up with Flatnose George, Walt Putney, and Tom O'Day. Harvey and Harry Longabaugh, also known as the Sundance Kid, met sometime either during the spring of 85 or maybe 1890 when the two of them were working on the range running cattle. Mm -hmm. More than likely, Sundance was there when Kid Curry arrived. For our listeners that don't know what the hole in the wall is, it's an area located southwest of the present town of Casey in Johnson County, Wyoming. The mountainside is approximately 35 miles long and 350 feet high, running from north to south. The southern end of the mountain forms a barrier to the west. The hole refers to where the red wall cuts back sharply to the east, forming a V-shaped notch. This location was perfect for cattle rustlers to hide out and rebrand the stolen cattle because the mountain range provides protection around lush green grazing grass for all the cattle. Yeah, it wasn't like an actual hole. It's not a cave. Yeah. So for a few years, the men would hide out in the area and they would steal cattle from larger cattle operations in Wyoming, Utah, and Idaho. And Flatnose was actually known for his ability to rebrand the cattle without leaving a terrible mark or having to actually cut the brand out, which that sounds horrible. And Mm -hmm. then they'd have to let it heal and rebrand, right? Likely. Yeah. Um, Well, the men would then take the cattle to Montana and they would sell them. During the time, the group became known as the Curry Gang, being named after Flatnose because during this time, Kid Curry and his brother Lonnie were known as the Roberts Brothers. Well, stealing cattle was dangerous work, and the payoff wasn't enough money to keep the men happy. So in 1897, they decided to rob a bank in Belfouche, South Dakota. They chose this area because Sundance and George Curry knew the area well and felt they could make a safe getaway after the robbery. The town was hosting the annual reunion of Civil War veterans on June 24th to the 26th, which people would be coming in from neighboring towns to partake in the festivities. And you know what town parties bring? Money. So the men decided to wait to rob the bank first thing Monday morning. That way all the money from the party would still be locked up and hopefully the bank would be full. Yeah, get a nice little takeaway, right? Yep. 
Well, the plan was to have Tom O'Day and Walt Putney enter town first and get a good spot across the street from the bank in front of the two hardware stores to prevent citizens from gaining access to the gun case. About an hour later, the other four men arrived in town. They tied up their horses on the side entrance on the bank and left one man behind with the horses. The remaining men went inside the bank. There were two employees in the bank at the time, as well as five customers. When the men entered the building, George Curry yelled out, Hold up your hands. One of the tellers, Arthur H. Marble, pulled out a gun on Kid Curry and fired, but his gun misfired. So he threw the gun and quickly threw up his hands, hoping they wouldn't kill him. (laughs) Mr. Giles was in his hardware store and could see the people in the bank with their hands up. He ran outside towards the bank to investigate what was going on when Tom O'Day shot at him. He wasn't him, but knew if he didn't get back inside the store, he'd be killed. He ran out the back of his store and started to yell, The bank is being robbed! (laughs) O'Day and Putney started firing shots into both the hardware stores to keep men from coming out. This commotion caused the men inside the bank to panic, and they just grabbed the cash receipts from one teller totaling up to ninety-seven dollars, which is just over three grand today. Not a very big takeaway, right? No. Uh, they actually left behind a thousand dollars in gold and silver, as well as whatever was inside the vault. So that's over thirty-two thousand dollars they left behind at the minimum. <laughs> yeah, so they got like ten percent of what they could have gotten. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the bigger haul is what they were after. Yeah. So as men exited the bank, they started shooting into the streets. They mounted their horses and took off. O'Day didn't bother to tie his horse up, or rather he was too drunk from the two bottles of whiskey he was sipping on while waiting for the men to remember to tie it up. It got spooked during all the shooting and took off, leaving him behind. (laughs) Didn't you say the horse followed the other horses of the getaway party? Yeah, they did. Brilliant. Well, the town was going crazy, and any man that had a gun was shooting at the bandits trying to stop them. Frank E. Bennett, the town's blacksmith, grabbed his rifle jumped on his horse bareback and began chasing the men. The townspeople, thinking he was one of the robbers, began to shoot at him. (laughs) They actually killed his horse, and thankfully he was okay, and they finally stopped shooting at him once they figured out who he was. (laughs) So when O'Day realized his horse was gone and he figured the next best thing to do was to try and blend in, he told the sheriff to not shoot the men because they'd taken his horse and that he'd go after him jumped on a mule and urged it forward. But rather than following the bandits, the jackass went in the opposite direction, because that's what they do. Not knowing what to do, he got off the donkey and ran, hiding in an outhouse. When he finally exited the shedder, the town folk had figured out who he was. He was arrested and locked up in the Butte County Jail. Yeah, he uh, threw his gun in the toilet. And when he came out, he's like, I'm unarmed. I was It wasn't me. I wasn't shooting. I don't even have a gun. So they actually moved the outhouse and fished the gun out. Gross. I know. <laughs> yeah, forensics at its finest. Yeah. I just imagine this being like a whole circus act while this is going on. It sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a bad movie right here. Yeah. Well, the rest of the men, they escaped and eventually made their way to Powder Springs hideout to meet up with Butch Cassidy and Elsie Lay. On July 29th, 1897, the men were headed into a town located in Wyoming called Dixon. They drank all the booze they could find in the town, and when there wasn't enough, they started to shoot the place up. From there, they went to Bags, Wyoming, and continued on with the drinking and shooting. It has actually been suggested that the gang became known as the Wild Bunch after this. That sounds fitting at that point. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, sometime in August, Kid Curry, Sundance, and Walt Putney were recognized in Red Lodge, Montana. The local sheriff formed a posse and chased them until they were able to surround the men. Walter and Sundance were getting water, and Kid Curry was tying up his horse when the posse demanded the men to surrender. Sundance and Putney jumped behind a rock while the men were shooting at him. They eventually decided to surrender. Kid Curry, on the other hand, ducked behind his horse, and while he was drawing his revolver, the sheriff fired his rifle. The bullet went through the horse's neck and hit Curry in the right wrist. Curry tried to flee on his horse, but he gave out about a mile away from camp. The men were all arrested and taken to Billings, Montana, and then to Deadwood to join Tom O'Day to face charges for the Belfouche robbery. They arrived in jail on September 30th, 1897, but did not stay there long. Sunday, October 31st, Halloween. Yeah. Uh, the men were able to break out of jail by forcing the jailer, John Mansfield, into the holding cells and locking him inside. O'Day and Putney went one way, while Kid Curry and Sundance went another direction. O'Day and Putney were on the run for two days before they were eventually caught and brought back to jail. Curry and Sundance, on the other hand, were able to steal some horses and made their way to the hole in the wall. The men stayed there during the winter and used the time to plan their next robbery, which was a Union Pacific train, and they needed money to fund the robbery. In March 1899, Kid Curry, Sundance, and Flatnose traveled to Nevada, making their way to Elko. There they posed as rich gamblers in the club saloon, but really, they had made plans to rob the place. The event took place around midnight on Monday, April 3rd. While the owner and bartender were counting up the evening's earnings, the three bandits entered with guns drawn. The men were taken at gunpoint by one of the bandits to the front of the bar, while the second robber covered the front door. The third thief gathered the money in the safe, making off with somewhere between five hundred to three thousand dollars. So that's between sixteen thousand and ninety-seven thousand dollars. It's a good haul, either yeah. way. Yeah. So the town folks arrested three locals thinking that they had done the robbery, but later put it together that the three gamblers that had been in town were no longer around. Yep, so it probably was them, right? Likely. Before we tell you about the train robbery the men took part in, we want to clarify something. In our episode Mile Marker 24, we talked about the Pinkertons, and we told the story as if Butch Cassidy had been involved. However, according to the book... He rode with Butch and Sundance, the story of Harvey Kid Curry Logan. Butch Cassidy was actually working as a ranch hand in Arizona at this time, and he believes that Kid Curry, Sundance, and Flatnose did the holdup. We're going to give you some details of the robbery, and you can make your own mind up as to who you think was really involved. It was a rainy day, Friday, June 2nd, 1899, when the westbound Union Pacific Overland Flyer Number 1 was flagged down at 2.18 in the morning about a mile west of Wilcox Station, by two men waving red lanterns. The driver, knowing the bridge was just ahead, thought that it may have washed away, so he slowed down and stopped the train. Two men wearing masks jumped aboard and ordered the engineer and fireman to pull the train over the bridge. Once the train was safe, the men blew up the bridge. They were then ordered to uncouple the locomotive and pull it forward about two miles. When the conductor refused, he was hit over the head with the butt of Flatnose Curry's pistol. The fireman then pulled the locomotive forward in fear he would be hit next. Now, the train away from everything else, the third bandit stopped inside. The three robbers went to the express car to open the two safes. When they were refused the code to the safe, they figured that they would just blow the thing up. Why not? 
The men must not have been trained in explosives because they used so much dynamite to get the safe open that they actually blew up the car in the process, as well as damaged some of the money inside. <laughs> Can't really spend burnt money, right? Not without uh, being recognized. Huh? Yeah. So reports vary as to how much they made away with. Some say it was $34,000. Others say it was $50,000. Well, that haul would be anywhere from one to $1.6 million today. Wow. Uh, what money we know for sure that they did get away with was $3,400. Which is about hundred and ten grand. Yeah, so that, that money was actually unsigned bills issued by the U.S. Treasury Department, and this helped the detectives track the men down. Yeah, having to forge that stuff will kind of give it away, I think. Mm-hmm. Once word got to town, the train had been robbed. Men from all over gathered together to track the bandits down, including detectives from the Union Pacific, the Pinkertons, and the Wyoming State Militia. This would be the largest manhunt for any members of the Wild Bunch gang. During the chase, Sheriff Josiah Hazen was shot in the stomach, and he did not make it through this wound. Mm -hmm. For 21 days, the posse chased the men before they received word to call off the hunt. But the Pinkerton detectives stayed on the case, and the Union Pacific never forgot what happened. On January 12, 1900, Union Pacific Railroad and Pacific Express Companies issued a wanted poster for the capture of the men involved in the robbery of the Wilcox train. Enlisted Kid Curry, his brother Lonnie, and their cousin Bob Lee as the wanted men with a reward of $18,000 total if all three of them were brought in. So that's over 576000 bucks. Wow. Yeah. They had no real evidence that Bob and Lonnie were involved other than that they had spent some of the unsigned bills and were positive that Kid Curry was involved. So they just assumed that Lonnie and Bob were the other two men. Great detective skills. Mm -hmm. Lonnie, fearing the detectives were after him, went to his aunt's house in Missouri to hide out. When the Pinkertons got word he was there, they went to question him on February 28th. Lonnie tried to escape out the back door, but didn't make it very far. He was shot in the back and killed by detectives. It's very proper questioning. Yeah, I mean, they had no evidence whatsoever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, Kid Curry and Sundance headed south to southern Colorado after the robbery to hide out. Flatnose opted against going to Colorado and went to Green River, Utah to rustle cattle with Tom Dilly. They were working for the Webster Cattle Company when they were caught rebranding cattle and hiding the herd for themselves. <laughs> Common rustling techniques. Yeah. Uh, when the sheriff came to arrest the men, they had vanished. They found Flatnose hiding behind some boulders near the Green River. As shots were exchanged between the men, George was shot in the back of the head and killed. The officers did not know at the time they had just killed George Curry. Over the next few days, folks began to identify the body. They even had his father come from Chadron, Nebraska to identify him. He told the men that this was his son and that he wanted to take him home to have him buried. Some folks believed that his father knew that this was not George, but he told him it was so the men would stop chasing his son, and he also wanted to collect a bit of the reward money. Yeah, I'm sure as a family member, it just get obnoxious to keep hearing all these stories yeah. and as a father thinking maybe you're giving him a chance to be free from all of it mm -hmm. and hope maybe he changes his evil ways yeah exactly on august 29th 1900 kid curry ben kilpatrick and bill cruzan band together to rob the union pacific railroad in tipton wyoming while trying to open the safe with dynamite they again demolished the express car these guys need to practice <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, Union Pacific stated they made off with $50.40, but the messenger Charles Woodcock, which side note, if I remember correctly, this Charles Woodcock is the same person in the Wilcox train robbery that would not give them the code to the safe. No, he's got some shitty luck too. (laughs) Yeah. Charles Woodcock was interviewed. He told them that they made off with $55,000. One of the detectives that was chasing the men said he found money wrappers strewn about the campsite, which would have totaled well over $50. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, 50 bucks is worth about $1,600 today. I have a feeling they made off with more than $50. Yeah, if that's what was laying around, then they probably made off with a decent haul. Yeah. The men had a goal to make it to Fort Worth, Texas at this time so that they could meet up with Butch Cassidy, Sundance, and Will Carver, who they had just robbed the bank in Winnemucca, Nevada, and they made off with over $32,000, which that's just over a million dollars today. So they had a large sum of money to go to Texas and hang out with for a while. (laughs) Well, while in Texas, the men take their famous picture of the five of them together. Uh, after Will Carver gets married to Laura Bullion, the group parted ways. Kid Curry and Ben Kilpatrick partner up with O.C. Hanks. They devised the plan to rob the Great Northern Coast Flyer Train on July 3rd, 1901, around Malta, Montana. So way back in the northern Montana part mm-hmm. again. So the men made off with $40,000 in unsigned banknotes from the U.S. Treasury. And that's just over $1.25 million. Mm-hmm. So the unsigned banknotes were super difficult for them to spend and kind of a crummy thing that they kept getting those. Instead of bullion that they can go and spend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. In November of 1901, on Friday the 13th, Kid was playing pool at the Central Bar in Knoxville. He got into a fight with two men. Two officers came in to break it up, and Curry would not let the man go. One officer even hit him over the head with his bully club, and Curry retaliated by firing a shot into his side. Curry then ran out the back, but was eventually caught on December 15th and was taken to jail where he was recognized as Kid Curry. Mm -hmm. So during his time in jail, he went to court several times facing charges of robbery and murder. He was eventually found guilty and was going to be moved to a prison that could house a dangerous criminal such as himself. The entire time he was locked in jail, he was making plans to escape. And now that he was about to be transferred, he figured he better put the plan into action or it's about to be too late. Yeah. Yeah, because he was in jail. I mean, he went in November 1901, so he got caught December. Mm -hmm. So from 1901 to 1903, that's a good span of time. And the whole time he was in jail, he kept thinking that he would be found innocent. Mm. So he never really tried to escape, even though the Pinkerton agencies kept telling the sheriff, you need to watch him. He's going to escape. Right. But because he went so long without ever doing anything to make them feel that he was going to, they kind of started letting him have a little more free reign of the gel. Yeah, got a bit lackadaisical. Yeah, exactly. That whole thing's really interesting. You'll have to read the book, and he goes into a lot of detail. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. Well, on June 27th, 1903, he tied the guard to a gel cell with rope he had been hiding. He then got the gun and threatened to kill him if he did not let him go. The man fearing for his life not only let him walk out of the jail cell, but he helped him get a horse to ride to safety. Yeah. <laughs> Better than thinking he's going to come back and kill him. Yeah. From here, Curry hid out before he made his way to Colorado with the help of George Kilpatrick and Dan Sheffield, who planned to rob another train. This time, it was going to be Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad. 
June 7, 1904, the men boarded the train at the parachute station. At 1.15 a.m., they ordered the conductor to stop the engine. This time, the men only made away with one package amounting to 30 bucks. Which is about $900. That's a shitty take. Yeah. So it's speculated that they robbed the wrong train because the train that had just passed through before them had 150 grand in gold bullion, exactly what they've been needing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And that would have been over $4.5 million. Those mm. guys would have been totally happy with that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, a posse was formed and they began chasing the men. So we have some discrepancies here. According to the parachute monument off of exit 75 on I-70, there's a rest stop over there and a mm -hmm. gas station in that area if you're traveling through and want to take a little stop. Uh, all this happened on the same day. So the plaque at Curry's grave marker states that the shootout took place two days after the robbery. And find a grave lists his death as the 9th of June, corroborating the find a grave mention of two days later. There's so many sources on the web, however, that list his death date as June 17th, which would have been 10 days after the robbery. That's too long ago for me to remember exactly what day it was, so I can't confirm one way or the other. Yeah, because you were there, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just don't like talking about it. No, that makes sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I'll explain what happened since you don't want to talk about it. Okay. After crossing Battlement Mesa, the posse caught up with the bandits, exchanged gunfire, and were able to flee. They rode on to Divide Creek, where they swapped their horses for fresh ones. On East Divide Creek, the posse again overtook the outlaws, and gunfire began to ring. Curry was a shot in the arm and told George and Dan to leave him. It is believed he told the men, Don't wait for me. I'm all in, and might as well end it right here. <laughs> Placing his revolver in his right temple, he pulled the trigger for the last time, sending a bullet through his brain. His body was taken to Glenwood Springs to be prepared for burial and photographed. They also did uh, death masks of him. Oh, yeah. That's right. I remember you mentioning yeah, that. Yeah, I forgot but, to put that in there, yeah. but how cool would that be to see that? Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. Well, a week after the robbery, he was laid to rest in the Potter's Field section of the Linwood Cemetery in Glenwood Springs, which just so happens to be the same cemetery that the world-famous Doc Holiday is in. Mm-hmm. Allegedly in, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Some people believe to this day that the man they found dead on the mountain was not Kit Curry. Several detectives, however, came to view the body before he was laid to rest, and even after he had been placed in the ground for several weeks, they exhumed his body just to make sure it was him. Mm -hmm. This actually happened a couple times with more thorough examinations, one of them by a doctor qualified in the uh, study of phrenology as well as palm reading. <laughs> You know, these are the forensic scientists of the time. Uh, there's some good detail about the doctor's findings in the book Gypsy Red. Uh, the final, I think we're, we were just talking about it. We're probably going to go through that doctor's reports on Patreon. So if you're interested, you can find us on the Patreon. Yeah. So the final identification came through Pinkerton agents spreading his death photos around. Yeah. The book that I keep mentioning, he goes into detail like where Kid Curry could have ended up if that really wasn't him. Mm -hmm. It's it's really fun. Um, our trip to visit Kid Curry was actually last year, and we rode the motorcycles out and stayed at the Grand Junction at the KOA. We actually have stayed there quite a few times. Yeah, yeah it's a nice spot to hang out. Yeah, a good little home base station for being able to go visit around areas and not have to travel very far. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about a 90-mile ride to Glenwood Springs from there, so it's not, not difficult at all. Yeah, it's a perfect day ride. Mm -hmm. 
And the cemetery is a little bit of a hike. Once you get there, you have to hike up a little bit of a hill, but it's really nothing major. It's, I don't know, maybe half a mile long. Mm -hmm. It's a little steep, however, rewards the effort with some great views and does have a couple of benches to rest on. The views are actually really pretty up there. Mm -hmm. It's gorgeous. Um, When we got to the cemetery, it just started dumping rain on us. And we had to try and hide under these trees. I wouldn't say that they were actually trees. (laughs) They were like bushes. Right. Tall bushes. (laughs) Um, There was another couple in the cemetery hiding out as well. We all just got soaking wet. And we were on the bike, so we didn't have, like, it wasn't like we can go get in the car and change our clothes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, but it was crazy. We went from freezing cold while it was raining. And then uh, 10 minutes later, it stopped raining. And then it went just from excruciating hot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most people coming up to the cemetery, they were just coming up to see Doc, and then they'd walk over to the next section and see Kid Curry, and then they would leave. But the cemetery actually has a lot of really unique and beautiful headstones in it. So if you guys ever do get the chance to visit, don't just stop at the two men. Actually walk around and take some time to see everything there. I actually found these really, really cool, unique military zinkies that I'll have Drifter put some pictures of them online. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're pretty awesome. They're probably my favorite ones. Yeah, a lot of fun names in there and unique stones. Yeah. Pretty cool. What was the one like Robert Woodhave or something? Yeah, Woodhave. <laughs> Mr. Woodhave. So would I. Woodhave what? You name it. <laughs> well, Doc is on one end of the cemetery, kind of the part that you can see most over overlooking the town and the hillsides yeah. and all that. And then Kid Curry's on the other end, pretty much at the beginning of the Potter's Field. Mm-hmm. Doc's grave, which will cover Doc Holiday, but he's going to be a big one, so it'll be a while. But we think that Kid Curry's is the beginning of the Potter's Field area, which is where Doc Holiday is actually supposed to be buried. Yeah. Uh, his marker's pretty simple, just a white and gray stone with Harvey A. Logan on top and Kid Curry below. And the date 1867 to 1904. His headstone's under a pine tree, which was nice because by the time we made it over to him, we were now roasting again and our clothes were steaming, I think. Yeah, yeah, it was nice to hide out for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, don't forget when you go to visit them to take a little string to tie it onto the wishing tree. Um, you'll see it along the trail. You can't miss it. It's, it looks like string all over on this tree. <laughs> yeah, shoelaces and bandanas yeah. and all that, yeah. Yeah, and I actually didn't know this was a thing, so I didn't have anything to tie on the tree. But next time we go back, I'm definitely going to make sure to bring something. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in knowing more, and I know I keep kind of mentioning this, but again, the the book I read and got a lot of information from was called He Rode with Butch Cassidy and Sundance, the story of Harvey Kid Curry Logan by Mark T. Smokoff. This guy did an amazing job into detailing Harvey's life and was able to, to disprove a lot of things that authors have otherwise published as facts. And he doesn't just tell about Kid Curry. He gets into the majority of the Wild Bunch and tells their involvement in the robberies. I got mine on the Kindle Amazon app. And if you guys are interested, get it, read it. It was really, really fun. Awesome. All right. So... Is it that time we're doing the dad joke? Are we still doing this? I don't know. Do you want to do one? This isn't my section. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I actually found one kind of, I don't know, maybe truth facts about Kate Curry. Oh, really? Yeah. And they made a joke of it, huh? Well, I don't know. You tell me if it's funny. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Did you know that Kid Curry took a bath after every one of his heists? I I can't say that he did. Yeah, he wanted to make a clean getaway.
Did you read it before when you went through and read this the first time? Yeah, I didn't find it funny then either. <laughs> just like he swept his horses. Uh, yeah, just like. <laughs> All right, well, <laughs> there you have it, folks. <laughs> That's our visit to Harvey Logan or Kid Curry's resting place. Or the location most people believe he's at. Yeah. Let us know what you think. Is Curry, Curry really there? I can't tell you for sure. They would come after everything else that I know. Oh, okay. Well, if you want to see some pictures of our travels, we'll post them on our website. At rebelatlarge.com, where you will also find links to our other social things as well. Yeah, if you're not following us already on Instagram, that's where we're most active. And that can be found at... At Rebel at Large. And don't be afraid to rate and review us if you feel so inclined. Leave us a comment. Yeah, definitely shoot us a message, whatever you want. Tell Gypsy a new joke, <laughs> something. All righty. We'll talk to you all here in a couple of weeks. Thanks again, folks. Safe travels. We'll see you all down the road. And he helped them complete their cabin, barn, and coral. <laughs> Damn it. I was so waiting for it. We talked about this earlier, and they would take the ponds and put coral reefs out there. That's what he was helping them develop was coral reefs. And this kept the cattle from tromping through and shitting all over inside of the... <laughs> the water. Yeah, inside of the pond. Yeah. Um, it would also... Coral is a natural filtration system as well, so it would help purify the sediment that would come up from all that. <laughs> So it makes sense. It's kind of a, it was a new thing back then for sure. And I don't think they practice it anymore. They got no. too much damage, but cause you know, the cows are still stupid. They're not figuring it out right away. They tear up their hooves, fall get in there, involved. yeah, get caught in, <laughs> caught in the coral reef and all that kind of stuff. So they don't practice it nowadays, but this was a new <clears throat> test and development at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, um, high class for back then. It's forward thinking for yeah. sure. Very progressive. Yeah. Well, what else did he help him do? Harvey. Fucking airplane. Goddamn flight. Doing really good at this reading stuff.